Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Good morning, good morning. Well, this is exciting. Man, didn't know what to expect, but there's probably more people at first service than I thought there would be. So praise the Lord for that, huh? Awesome. God is good. Well, again, welcome to Calvary Chapel. Um, A few things before we get going this morning. Baptisms are happening next week after the second service. So 11 a.m. service right after that, or during the service actually at the very end, we're going to do baptisms. So if you want to be baptized, sign up today at the Welcome Center. It's the last time you can sign up. We will be doing another one in January. But uh, um, we're going we're gonna, to, uh, if you want to be baptized uh, before this year end, then you need to sign up today. So that, that's awesome. Now, open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 4 this morning. Revelation chapter 4, as we continue the Things to Come series. How many of you guys uh, came out for the women's tea yesterday? Wasn't that a wonderful time? Man, thank you, uh, Leah, and all your, the group of people that helped you get this thing together. I know the ladies said they really enjoyed it. And what an awesome job. See, and, and the benefit of being, you know, in, in the, a guy is that we get to come in with all the foo-foo stuff already set up. So, we, you know, if it was just us, we'd probably have a couple card tables, and that's about it. But uh, we, we, we really enjoyed it, too. Thank you, Pastor Mike. For, and everybody who helped you get uh, things organized and also put back in place. Uh, Pastor Mike was thinking we'd just have to stand up for service today, but fortunately people held, hung out. And uh, uh, guys, did you have a good time last night? Was that not fun? Uh, the man rap, only a couple guys had a good time, so that's cool. <laughs> hey, uh, Mike, uh, was it number three or number one who took the, took the $50 gift card home for man rap? So I think this thing's rigged because he was number one. So, no. Did you guys see his package? Did you see it? It was, it was wood, wrapped in wood, like little wood. It was awesome, man. He did such a good job. I didn't even try. I just took mine, packaged it up, put some duct tape on it, and said, that's it. I'm not even going to bother because that was such an awesome job. Thank you, guys. Let's give it up for Pastor Mike for everything that he's done to help us with that. Revelation chapter 4. So we're coming to uh, the final section in the book of Revelation. There's three sections, as you know. Revelation 119, Jesus gives us the divine outline in, in the book of Revelation. He tells John, who is on the island of Patmos, uh, you know, he's being persecuted for his faith, and the Lord gives him the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the revelation of the end times, the revelation of Jesus Christ, who Jesus really is. And Jesus divides up the book of Revelation into three sections. He tells John, first, to write, therefore, the things that you have seen. We find that section in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. Jesus goes on, those that are speaking about what we just finished last Sunday, chapters 2 and 3, referring to the churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor, they're literal churches that have some representation today, whether they, and they probably have fulfilled some historical, um, you know, uh, church, and in, 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 in we kind of went through that. And then we come to the third section this morning where Jesus tells John to write the things that must take place after this. Stand with me and let's read our text this morning. 
We are going to read Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we're just going to read verse 1 today. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Father, here we have before us this final section of the book of Revelation according to Jesus' words. We ask you, Lord, to just help us to come with open hearts, Lord, to what, what it is that you want to speak to us this morning regarding this passage. Father, we transition from earth to heaven in this verse. And so help us to understand what it means for us, Lord. May it put a fervency in our hearts, Lord, to desire uh, a passion for heaven and, and more of you, Lord, and that we would want to take as many people with us as possible. So we ask you to come by your spirit, speak to us now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Remember back when you were a kid, for some of you guys, that's like way back, so you're like having to go in the archives of your mind. I'm almost there with you, by the way. But remember when your mom and dad called you into their presence and you knew what was about to happen probably because of two things. Number one, the tone in which you heard your voice and the manner in which your parents spoke your voice, right? So if I heard with a serious tone, Timothy Jr. Romero, Jr., yes, is my middle name. It's unfortunate, I know. I blame my parents for this. But if I heard that in a serious voice, I knew that I had done messed up. I am in trouble big time. Right? But if I heard in sort of a non-serious voice, Tim or Timmy or Chion, that was my nickname. That In Spanish, I'm told it means crybaby. I don't know. I don't speak Spanish, but um, I'm Spanish, but I don't speak. I blame my parents for that, too. So... But if I heard those words, then I, I, I kind of, I, I knew that I wasn't in big trouble. I knew that things would be, if I heard Timothy Jr. Romero, I'm finding books to stuff down my pants to protect my hiney. <laughs> and if I heard Tim or Timmy or Chion, I'm walking in like I own the place because I knew that I wasn't in trouble. Well, John here in Revelation chapter 4, he hears the voice of Jesus in a little bit different fashion than he's used to hearing. It's, but it's not foreign to him. The voice is not foreign to him. We read in the text that it says his voice was like a trumpet. It was like a trumpet. Again, John heard that voice before in the very beginning of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Uh, here's what it says. I was in the Spirit. John speaking on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. We know this is the voice of Jesus because it goes on to tell us the description of the person speaking and we can relate that according, you know, just simply by looking at Daniel chapter 7, we know it's Jesus. So we know it's Jesus, and uh, Jesus is speaking with a voice that's different than John heard when Jesus was on earth, with him, walking with him. 
This voice is an authoritative voice, not that Jesus didn't have authoritative voice when he walked on earth, but this one commanded his attention. He stood at attention immediately when he heard the voice. That's what a trumpet does. A trumpet will cause you to stand at attention. That's why they use it in the military and such. You know, back in ancient days, Israel would use a trumpet to call the people either to worship or call them to war. That trumpet sound was meant to be distinguished, and it was meant to, to tell them something. They need to take care. They need to consider what is about to happen. This is serious. We're either talking worship or we're talking war. Both we should be coming in the same manner. Serious. We're talking about the God of heaven here. We're talking about going in where lives may be lost as, as it relates to war. What is Jesus communicating to John here in this passage? We find what he's communicating by what he says here. He says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Those words, after this, meta tauta. I, I find it interesting that Facebook has just changed their name to meta. Whoa, that's Greek for after. Metaverse, what is the verse? It's a virtual world. That, the, that, you know, all of these companies are running as fast as they can to develop because people are trying to get virtual. They don't want to live in the real world, folks. That's why Facebook said, here's an opportunity for us to take the, the, this virtual world captive. We're going to call our name Meta, and we're going to invest heavily in a virtual world. Why? Because we don't want to look around and see what's going on. We want to be distracted. Not necessarily the church, the true church, but the world, it's a distraction. It's so that you don't have to face reality. And the world is running towards these things. People, listen, this might, you might think this is crazy. But you know, people are spending millions of dollars buying virtual property in virtual worlds. Do you know people like... Adidas, Nike, uh, you know, all, Reebok, all these guys are spending millions of dollars to buy property to advertise within the virtual worlds. This is happening right now because people don't want to face reality. Why don't they want to face reality? Because things are happening. Because people don't want to look around and say like, well, this seems weird. We've got this, this virus that doesn't seem like it was, uh, you know, just naturally happening. And you've got all these different things going on in the world today. You've got the government that has an agenda. And you've got all, all these things. The world is, you know, divisions and all of these things going on. Not to mention wars, rumors of wars. Not to mention earthquakes. Not to mention famines. Not to mention all of the other things that are going on. We know what that means. But the world, they have no clue. They have no idea. So what, what is the response? Let's create a virtual world where we can make everything nice and distracting so that people don't look up. That's the point. Jesus is telling John here, come up here. Come up where? This is a heavenly scene. This is a heavenly call. John is being drawn up into the heavenlies where God reigns, he, where he where he inhabits, where he stays. And John is being called up there. Now, when people come to this passage, um, you know, you have to make a decision on how you see this. You have to make a decision about John, about who he represents. You have to make a decision about what Jesus is communicating in this passage. 
And so we're going to talk about the rapture of the church this morning. The rapture of the church. There are certain places in the book of Revelation, in the eschatological timeline of the book of Revelation, that you could potentially insert the, the rapture. I want to show you some different points in which people will insert the rapture. And the reason I want to do that is because we've come to one today where, we, where I personally believe this is speaking totally about the rapture. I think that because of my eschatological viewpoint, I see this as the rapture. And that's how I will teach it next week. This week I want you to see for yourself and consider how, do someone, how does someone arrive to a pre-tribulation rapture view? How do you get there in Scripture? You know, how do I come to that place of understanding that the rapture will, you know, take place prior to the tribulation? Or is it mid-tribulation? Or is it post-tribulation? Is it pre-wrath? I mean, there's, is it partial rapture? I mean, there's so many different views on what you can see relating to this subject that I'm going to lay out a few for you. But understand, make no mistake about it, I am 100% to the core, pre-trib rapture. And that's how I have to teach the passage to be, uh, you know, honest and be, uh, you know, not, not uh, violate my own conscience. So understand that. But, but I say this also, I want to tell you that as we, we come to this passage, there's many different views. And you might be here going, well, I don't really see it that way. And that's totally okay. Uh, you know, I think that what, what happens sometimes when we come to these passages is that, you know, even if I'm dogmatic about the way I see it, you know, or the way you see it, we can still have fellowship. You know that? We don't have to divide over this specific subject. The only thing, and this is such an um, issue in the church today, the only thing that we should divide on in the church of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. You shouldn't walk away from a conversation about the rapture going, I'm never going back to that church again. What are you doing? You're breaking fellowship? I also shouldn't come into a conversation going, well, they're not welcome here anymore either because they see it. No, no, that's not the way we should look at it. We should be able to have a conversation about it. And I'd be happy to have a conversation with you about it, by the way. But let's not divide over it. Let's remain, you know, let's remain uh, in fellowship. There are many, many really smart, totally sold-out believers who believe differently about this subject, you know, and uh, it, it, it all is going to come down to ultimately how you read Scripture, how you read Scripture. If you remember in the opening of our, the book of Revelation, I talked to you about methods of biblical interpretation and why that's important when you come to the book of Revelation. Because if you don't read the Bible a certain way, you won't come to, uh, you know, the certain conclusions. And if you read it, uh, you know, another way, you'll come to maybe some conclusions that aren't there. It all comes down to how you read the Bible. So before we get into this, let's begin with the word rapture. The word rapture is found in Second Opinions chapter... Th no, I'm just kidding. But the word rapture is not found in the Bible, the word itself. The word itself, rapture, is not found in the Bible, but it does come from a phrase that represents the, the event of the rapture of the church, and it's the phrase caught up in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, chapter 4, and we're going to look at this, chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. 
It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are in Christ, that's who he's talking about, believers in Jesus Christ, the church are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, listen what Jesus says about, or what Paul says about the rapture, therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's supposed to be an encouragement. It's supposed to build us up. And it's supposed to produce this, this, this urgency to go and tell people about Jesus. Because we don't know when he's coming. The phrase caught up in the Greek is harpazo. Harpazo. When we translate it from the Greek to the Latin, we get the word rapturo. Translate the Latin to the English, we get the word what? Rapture. That's where the word rapture comes from. It's, it's not such a huge deal that the word itself in its English form is not in the Bible. That's okay. Because the event is. Did you know that the word Bible isn't in the Bible? Did you know the word Trinity is not in the Bible? But we understand that those things are in the Bible in the terms of the way that they are presented to us. These are words we use to help us understand what we're talking about. The rapture of the church, the catching away, you could call it if you want, the snatching away. It's a violent sort of act that just, you're gone. You're here one day, one moment, and you're gone the next. You know, we see an incredible example of this in one of my favorite passages in Scripture in Acts chapter 8 where we find Philip. Philip, you remember, he, he, was, he went out into the desert. The Lord led him out into the desert. He was, there was a revival happening where he was, and he was, you know, the Lord said, no, I want you to go out into the desert. He's like, hold on, there's great things happening here, Lord. No, no, go out to the desert, Philip. He goes out there. There's a one Ethiopian eunuch riding on his chariot. Philip must have been from, you know, from Africa because he ran and caught up to that thing, or the Holy Spirit gave him supernatural speed to be able to get there. He ran up to him and he said, what are you doing, man? In my words, he said, oh, I'm reading the book of Isaiah. Sounds like you, do you understand what you're reading? I have no clue, man, but it's really interesting to me. The Lord drawing him. That's how the Lord draws people. They don't fully understand what they're, what they're thinking or what they're reading, but there's something that the Lord is doing in their heart and he's drawing them to himself. And so Philip says, you want me to tell you what that means? He starts to tell him about Jesus. And he gets saved. Of course, the very next thing that happens is Philip, you know, sees the genuine salvation of this man and they see some water. And he goes, well, heck, I don't, I don't think he said heck, but, uh, you know, why don't you just get baptized? So they pull the, pull the car over. They get out, they go out down into the water, and as Philip brings the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you, rising him up, and then Philip's just caught away. It says the Holy Spirit carried Philip to Azotus. And then Philip went on to preach the gospel from there until he got to Caesarea, which was his landing point. But here's the awesome thing about that. That was a picture. That same word, carried, in the Greek, is harpazo, snatched away. He was there one moment, and as he brought him back out of the water, the Lord didn't drop him back down in the water, by the way, brought him all the way back up, 
and he was gone. I think that's awesome. That's what the rapture is going to be like. We're just there one moment and we're not the next. Just snatched away. And so we, we understand that even though the word is not in the scriptures, the event is. Now, there are three different viewpoints primarily. I mentioned them already. When it comes to the rapture of the church, there is the pre-tribulation rapture view. There is the mid-tribulation rapture view, the post-tribulation rapture view. Those are the primary three main kind of ideas. And then there's pre-wrath, which is I consider mid-trib because that's, that's really what it is, you know, in, in the timeline. And um, so, so pre-tribulation rapture, obviously the rapture happens at the close of the church age, right before the tribulation period begins. It's perhaps even the final act of the church age where the Lord moves into the, the age to come, which is the, age, the judgment time of uh, the revelation there that we'll read about. Mid-trib is that it happens three and a half years into the tribulation period. Post-trib, that it happens at the end of the tribulation period as Jesus comes back just prior to the millennial uh, uh, reign of Christ. So um, that's kind of how they're put in there. Now, how come if we have the same Holy Spirit in us and we have the same scriptures we're reading, how come we can come to different conclusions when it comes to this scripture? How does that work? It's because we read scripture differently. It's because we look at scripture differently. We look at passages differently. I want to just throw out there that you cannot make the Bible say whatever you want it to say if you're honest with it. You know, unbelievers say that to us all the time. Oh, you can make the Bible say whatever you want to say. No, you can't. You cannot make the Bible say what you want it to say if you're honest with the Scriptures. You have to be honest with the Scriptures. That means that you have to understand how to read the Bible. You know, we talk about it all the time. Just read the Bible. Just read the Bible. Read the Bible like a child. Yeah, you know how a child reads the Bible? Like God can do anything. Like God could... God is a hero. He could do anything. He's going to rescue me. That's how I envision a child reading the Bible. But here's the thing, is that when we start to read into it what we want it to say, that's where we get messed up. I, I found uh, this, I think this cartoon clip here illustrates this um, perfectly. The scene is, in my mind at least, the way I look at it, this girl standing comes up to her brother and asks him, hey, what are you doing? To which he replies, don't bother me. I'm looking for a verse of scripture to back up one of my preconceived notions, you know. And, and, and oftentimes we come to the scriptures in that way, particularly when it comes to subjects like this. We're not so much allowing the scripture to speak to us. We're, we're not we're not exegesis when it comes to the scriptures. We're eisegesis. We're reading into the scriptures what we think they say rather than allowing the scriptures, you know, dissecting and bringing out what the scripture is truly saying. And so that's why there are so many different versions, uh, different um, ideas about the rapture and all of that kind of stuff. There is how many interpretations of scripture, folks? There's one. One interpretation of scripture. Somebody's wrong here. Somebody's wrong. You know, it could be me. I don't think it is, but it could be. It could be you. There's one interpretation of Scripture. How many, how many applications of Scripture are there? Infinite, right? You could apply the Scripture in a, a gazillion different ways and never exhaust it. But there is only one interpretation. 
then what it comes down to is our responsibility is to come at the Scriptures and say, what does it say? What does it mean? And how does it apply to me? This is called inductive Bible study. We ask ourselves these questions. Who, what, when, where, why? What's the historical context of the passage? How do we, um, you know, what's going on? Why, why is it being said? And we begin to read the Scriptures in that way, in an inductive manner, where we're, we're, we're trying to understand what the writer's trying to say to us. Here's the thing is, you know, when I, when I was a kid, I loved to get those cereal boxes that had those little decoders in them, and you could, on the back of the cereal box, you're like, whoa. Kids probably don't even do that anymore because it's too boring for them. But that's all we had. But, uh, you know, this isn't, you don't have to decode the Bible. I don't want you to give the wrong impression. But you do have to know how to read it. You do have to know how to read it so you can come to the right conclusion. Thankfully, we have a teacher. Thankfully, the Lord doesn't leave us on our own in our own intellect to figure this out, right? He's given us the Holy Spirit, folks. The Holy Spirit is, he, he, can, he can explain exactly what the Lord is telling us if we will let him, if we'll allow him, if we won't bring our preconceived ideas to the text. And it's hard to do that, I know. It's very hard, very hard, but we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to those around us, and we owe it to the Lord to be honest with the text and not to read into it what we think it should say. I was talking to somebody this, this last week about the rapture, and I said, do you know there are some people that believe that the rapture is going to happen at the end of the uh, tribulation period, right at the end there, right when Jesus is coming back. Some people believe that that's when the rapture is going to take place. What do you think? And this person said to me, yeah, th that sounds good to me. I mean, I think that's about right. <laughs> and I said, why do you think that? You think that because that's because of the way you feel about the statement, or you think that because you have some, you know, scriptural reasons why you believe that? I think sometimes we just feel that way. Sometimes we just feel like it's a pre-trib rapture. Sometimes we feel like it's this or that. It doesn't matter how you feel, folks. What does it say? And that's what it comes down to. Uh, now, in order to understand the, the rapture, and, you know, this is more of a kind of a, a, a little a, a Bible study than anything else this morning. It's more of a, um, you know, we have to start um, at, at biblical hermeneutics in order to get to the place of understanding how do we come to these rapture views. Biblical hermeneutics, what is that? The, that's that's the, the way in which you, the method in which you interpret Scripture. There's only two different, there's two different hermeneutics when it comes to the Bible, two different methods of interpretation in the Bible. And that is, you know, there is the literal interpretation of the Bible. You just read the Bible literally and let it say what it says. Or you can read the Bible spiritually, which means allegorically or symbolically and non-literally. So you can read the Bible that way too. That's going to make a huge difference on where you land. And, and the, the, really the subject matter before we even get to the rapture when it comes to this thing is what people believe about the, the millennium, about the millennial reign of Christ. You're going to hear terms today. Maybe you're, if you're not familiar with them, write them down. This is your opportunity to, to begin to learn, to dive into eschatology, the study of end times, and understand what are these words mean and how do they, where are the views coming from? Begin to get yourself at a place where you understand these things, but, but not to say that you don't. 
I barely understand them myself, so I did a lot of looking up myself this week. But premillennialism, all millennialism, postmillennialism, all of these views relating to the millennial reign of Christ, they arrive at these positions because you either read the Bible literally or you read it symbolically or non-literally or spiritually. The premillennialist interprets prophecy in the Bible as literal when it makes sense. In other words, when Jesus says stuff like, you know, you know, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out or cut your hand off, uh, he's speaking symbolically about being radical with your sin. We, we understand that. He's not talking about, you know, maiming yourself or anything like that, but he's talking about being radical with your sin, right? But there are scriptures when it comes to prophecy that are like that, and we'll see them as we go through the book of Revelation. But for the most part, we just read the Bible literally and take it for what it says. Uh, I love what Pastor Chuck always said. Uh, he started the movement at Calvary Chapel, and he would always say, when the literal sense makes perfect sense, make no other sense, lest you make what? Nonsense, right? Because that's the way that you need to interpret the Bible. The premillennialist interprets the Bible literally, biblical uh, uh, prophecy literally, and, you know, as John Wolvord put it, he's premillennialist, he said the, it means the second coming of Christ will occur before his, listen, literal reign of 1,000 years on the earth. So this position takes a very literal stance that Jesus is going to come back in physical form. He is going to take the throne in Jerusalem, and he is going to reign in a temple for 1,000 years on earth physically. That's what this view looks at in, in general. Uh, you know, we don't have time to go through all the different variations of premillennialism because there's a ton of them, but most modern-day premillennialists are dispensational. What does that mean? That means they look at the Bible in ages or epochs. Like God has moved in a certain ways here and here and here and here, and there are different ones. You can look them up. There are seven or eight, I like to say, because I, I break out the church age and the age of wrath. This is different. But um, anyway, you can, you can look at that yourself. But that's what dispensational means, that God has been revealing himself to man in various ages and eras. We see that in the scripture too. Because of the, the, especially in the New Testament, when they talk about the coming of the end of the what? Age. The age. I think it's dispensational. But premillennials are dispensational. They also, um, most of them are pre-tribulation rapturists, believe that the rapture will come prior to the tribulation. And here's an incredible distinction that you need to understand about premillennialists. That they consider Israel and the church two distinct programs when it relates to God and what he's doing on earth. Super important. Super important when you come to, to understanding and interpreting the Bible. Who is God talking to? Is he talking to Israel or is he talking to the church? You know, there is what's called replacement theology. A lot of Reformed theologists believe in replacement theology, meaning they, they take on the idea that, that the church when established in Acts chapter 2 by Jesus himself, that, that, that at that point, the church sort of took over for Israel. We replaced them in that, in that sense. And now we're moving forward, and 
um, you know, everything that God promised through Israel is being fulfilled through the church. I don't read the scripture like that, but, but that's what uh, some of them uh, will, will, will say, people that, that believe in a re, uh, replacement theology. Um, so it really matters on how you view Israel and what God's end goal is with Israel. Because that also uh, lands you at a place when it comes to the tribulation of what the purpose of the tribulation is. Pre-trib, uh, dispensational rapturist, I believe that the tribulation period is specific to Israel. I think it's throughout there we see all of the tones of Israel as we begin in, in chapter 6, and the Lord starts, that's really when the tribulation starts. Chapters 4 and 5 are, are, are really John in heaven with a heavenly view, and, and then, we start, then we get back down to earth on chapter 6, and we start to see the Lord unfold his wrath on the earth. But Thomas Ice, who is the director of Pre-Trib Rapture Center in, on the campus of Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, he said, premillennialists see the present era as the church age, dispensational, which is a separate and distinct work in God's plan from that of Israel. Christ's redemptive work is the only basis for salvation regardless of the time period a believer lives under. And so what he is saying is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of times people have the question, what about Israel and salvation then? If Jesus Christ is the only way, if it's by grace through faith in Christ alone, how do Old Testament saints get saved? By grace through faith in Christ alone. What do you mean? They had biblical prophecy, folks. They had an understanding that the Messiah was coming. They knew that he was coming. They trusted in that he was coming. You don't think for a second, the writer of Hebrews chapter 9 tells it very clearly that the blood and bulls of goats cannot remove your sin. The old sacrificial system of, of the day was simply a, a symbol of, what, of things to come. It was a shadow, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who would become the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. We also see the foreshadowing of Jesus to come, uh, you know, in, in the Exodus in Egypt where they take that lamb and they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintel of their doors and they are hidden behind literally the blood of the lamb. It all points to Jesus, folks. And that is the point of it. It's, the sacrificial system of the day was not to bring salvation. It was to cover sin so that man could be in relationship with God. But when Jesus came, he removed sin. The sacrificial system simply covered it. It's like you go to a fancy restaurant, you spill something on the table, and they, what do they do? They bring a nice white cloth, and they just cover it. That's the sacrificial system of the day. Jesus Christ, he comes over, he takes the tablecloth, he takes it, you know, and all your stuff's still there. You're like, whoa. And then he goes, I don't know how he did that, but I've never seen anybody do that. But that's what he did. Brand new. Totally clean. That's what he did for us. How awesome is that? But a pre-tribulation person believes ultimately that it's always about Jesus, that it brings you back to that place of the blood of the Lamb, even in the Old Testament. Um, the all-millennialists, the, these um, that land in this camp, they, they interpret the prophetic scriptures as non-literal and allegor allegorically, and they are not dispensational. They don't see it as in ages or epochs. They, uh, they ascribe to a, um, they think that the millennial reign of Christ is non-literal. 
They don't believe it. They don't believe that Jesus is going to physically come and rule and reign in this world. They also don't believe in a rapture. They don't believe in a rapture at all. Um, they, they do tend to vary on how they describe the time frame of the millennial reign of Christ. All millennials, uh, Floyd E. Hamilton said, Christ's millennial kingdom extends from his resurrection from the tomb, so the resurrection, to the time of his second coming. They're saying, no, that's the millennial. That's what it means. That's the millennial reign of Christ. He goes on, on earth, Christ's kingdom is not of this world, but he reigns especially in the hearts of his people on earth. We do believe that. We do believe that. He said a thousand years is describing the perfect, complete time between the two comings of Christ. So that's how they see the millennial reign of Christ. It's also important to note that they ascribe to the form of replacement theology. They, don't, they believe that the church replaced Israel. Super important. Uh, Kim Riddlebarger, who wrote the book A Case for All Millennialism, says all millennialists hold that the promises made to Israel, David, and uh, Abraham in the Old Testament are fulfilled by Jesus Christ and his church during this age. So that does, that's not scriptural in my mind in the way that I read the Bible because I read it literally. Similar to all millennialists, premillennialists interpret prophetic scriptures mainly as non-literal or, or allegorically, and they are also not dispensational. They don't ascribe to a literal millennial reign of Christ or a rapture of the church either. So they're, they're kind of similar in, in that fashion. Norm, uh, Norman Shepard defines postmillennialism as the view that Christ will return at the end of an extended period of righteousness and prosperity. Super important to understand this. That's what they call the millennium. Uh, you know, the idea is this. Postmillennialists be believe, and there are modern-day postmillennialists that are running huge churches in our culture today. What they believe is that the, the church will transform the world and it will get better and better and better. And as it gets better and better, not everybody will be converted, but a lot of people will be converted. So that's why they're really looking for this huge awakening and all this kind of stuff because that will determine when Christ comes back, when the world gets a little better. Does that seem contrary to Scripture to you at all? I, I, I read in my, I, not to laugh, that's, I mean, some people hold to that view, but here's the thing is, I read my Bible and I say, I think it says I can never clean myself up. I think it says I'll never be good enough. I think it says that I just need to trust in Jesus. And by the way, what do you do with the fullness of the Gentiles coming in and, and sorts of things like that? But, but Thomas Ice commented on that. He said the postmillennial sees the current age as the kingdom of God. They see it as, uh, in that sense. However, they see the reign of Christ not just in the hearts of believers today, but as an impacting society. Postmills believe that since the kingdom was established at Christ's first coming, it is currently being expanded through the preaching of the gospel until an overwhelming majority, not, though not all, will be converted to Christ, such gospel success will create a climate of reception to the things of Christ like his mediated rule through the uh, church of all the world. So postmillennialists believe that the world has to get better and better for Christ to come back. Um, David Chilton, also postmillennialist, said all millennialism and postmillennialism are the same thing. The only fundamental difference is that postmills believe the world will be converted and all mills don't. Otherwise, I'm an all mill. Got it? That's what he said. There, these are the three different views when it comes to Scripture. You can see when it comes to the millennial reign of Christ, that matters now as it relates to the rapture because that will put you in a certain camp when it comes to the rapture of Jesus.
Um, Dr. John Wolvord, who I believe, you know, if you're looking for a good commentary on the book of Revelation or end times eschatology, um, president of Dallas um, Theological Seminary, um, you know, really studied in the end times, considered an expert uh, theologian. Um, he was interviewed in 1994, and he was asked this question. What do you predict will be the most significant theological issues over the next 10 years? He said this. The hermeneutical problem of not interpreting the Bible literally, especially in prop prophetic areas, the church today is engulfed in the idea that one cannot interpret prophecy literally. And this was in 1994. This was before the emergent church came out. <laughs> Whoa. Can't, we don't have absolute truth. How can it be literal then, right? That's what the emergent church said. But, but he is so that is so true. It all comes down to how you interpret the Bible, folks, and where you're going to land when it comes to the things to come. At Calvary Chapel, we are a movement that, that takes the Bible, that reads the Bible literally. In, in every sense of the imagination that we can, we, we take the Bible literally. There is symbolism, but we can't consider it all symbolic either. So that automatically puts us in a premillennial camp. So then the question becomes, where do we see the, 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 uh, the rapture of the church? Um, as a movement, most Calvary chapels are pre-tribulation rapturous, believing that it will happen before that. But premillennials can land in all, all three of those camps, by the way. You can land into the, the, the pre-tribulation pre pre rapture. You can land in the mid-trib and, and the post-trib. Um, so we're going to look at that here in a second. Um, when we come to the book of Revelation, the reason why I think it's important to understand this is because this is one of the points, as I said, that you can insert the rapture of the church. When I read here, after this, metatauta, after what? After what Jesus said, he's, it's, it's really fulfillment of what Jesus said in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, where he's talking about write the things that must take place, what? Metatauta, after this. After this, immediately John, uh, John's in, in heaven here. I think John represents the church. Is, it, is John the church? No, he's a representation of the church. Remember, there's a lot of pictures in prophecy. Prophecy, it, it, it lays out pictures for us. Not necessarily doctrinal teachings, but it gives us pictures. This is a picture of the rapture, I believe, and John finding himself there. So, um, as we come to Revelation chapter 6, we see that, that things change a little bit. It's back, here, here's, here we find, um, you know, after uh, Jesus uh, you know, he's the only one worthy to open up the seals, and, and that's, that's at the end of chapter 5, and then we get to chapter 6, and it says, now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. Now all of a sudden, this is where the tribulation begins. And to be honest, there are, there are some that will say, okay, well, Revelation 6 through Revelation 11 are, that's the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. So the wrath that's coming down on the earth, spoken of here in Revelation 6, is not God's wrath, but it's man's wrath and it's Satan's wrath. So that's how you come to this conclusion of a mid-trib rapture. And, you know, 
when I see it here, who, who's the one opening the seals? Jesus. Who's in control? Jesus. Whose wrath is it? I think it's Jesus's. Right? That, that's just my own opinion here, but, but that's the way I see it in Scripture because God is 100% in control, and he's the one opening the seals and calling these things forward to go do what they're going to do. Even the Antichrist, who is one of the four horsemen there, the one on the right, the white horse, that's not Jesus Christ, that's the Antichrist. And we'll see that when we get there. Something else that's interesting, too, is from, from this point on, chapter 4 through... Um, chapter, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, we no longer read about the church in the tribulation, in, in, the, in the book of Revelation. It doesn't even mention the word church. It's mentioned 21 times in the book of Revelation, 20 in the first three chapters, and, and, and then it's mentioned one more time, and that's after everything's over in Revelation 22, 16, and it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches, I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. It's interesting that that's the case. I wouldn't bank my theology on that. But I think when you collectively take a look at Scripture altogether, that makes a lot of sense that it would land us at a pre-trib rapture. So, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus, Jesus told us this. And here's the context so I can set it up for you. Um, Jesus tells his disciples... I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going away. Then he says, by the way, one of you will betray me, and, and one of you is going to deny me. This is the setup for this verse, okay? He's talking, he's talking eschatologically here. He says in chapter uh, 14, verse 1 then, so, by the way, let not your hearts be troubled, you know? Why would you be? Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... What I have told you, that I go prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's a promise, folks. Jesus isn't going to leave us orphans. He's coming back for us. He said he's gone to prepare a place for us. This says rooms. King, New King James says mansions. I prefer the New King James in this particular uh, passage. But the more important thing is that he's coming back to get his church. The more important thing is that he is coming to get us. Jesus is speaking to his church and promising that he's coming to get us. Let me illustrate this in Matthew chapter 24. You could flip there with me real quick. We're going to look at Matthew 24. And so many people, I think, take this, these, these verses out of context. I think it's important for you to, to get. Matthew chapter 24 Again, setting up the passage for you, we're going to look at two, verses 2 and 3 first. The, the disciples and Jesus are coming out of the temple. They're, they're coming and they're looking and they see all the buildings and the temple and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, look at Jesus, look how awesome this is. And here's Jesus' words to him. You see all these things, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left, one he, left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, Jesus, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, we know because we have the vantage point of looking backwards 
in history that Jesus was speaking literally. We know that his prophetic word regarding the temple and the buildings in Jerusalem was he was speaking literally. That wasn't symbolic at all. But here's the interesting thing about it is that even in the Old Testament, they did read the prophecy literally um, because they were looking for Jesus when he came, by the way. But it's interesting that they had a skewed view when it came to setting up his kingdom. And so when the disciples asked what I think they believe to be one question, Jesus says, oh, no, those are, those are two, a minimum of two, probably three different questions because you don't have your timeline right. And so Jesus then goes on through the rest of uh, Matthew 24 defining, answering what I believe to be three questions here. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You could lump those last two together or you can consider them two separate questions. But Jesus goes on to explain it. Here's what's interesting. He doesn't tell them which question he's answering and he doesn't do it in order. So that leaves us for, you know, we, we have to figure out who, what is he answering, what does he mean? When the disciples asked the question, they were thinking that Jesus was coming to set up his kingdom now. They weren't thinking of a second coming. They didn't understand that in, in, in prophecy at that time. Jesus said, no, the destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen. So they automatically thought, oh, finally, the Messiah is coming and he's going to bring his kingdom. This, this kingdom is going to be destroyed, but he's going to bring his kingdom in. He is, but not at this time. And so he goes on to explain to us what he means by this. And I think so many people misinterpret this. And he goes on to give signs and all these sorts of things as you read down through the passage. You can read it later. But I want to bring you to Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 40 through 44. He says this. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Listen, super important, verse 42. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, but would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Two things going on here. The doctrine of eminency, meaning Jesus could come back at any moment. That's what he's saying. And the second thing is also the picture of the rapture here. But here's what's interesting, is most people take what Jesus says here, for you do not know the, what day your Lord is coming, and they apply it to the second coming, which is not correct. Why is it not correct? Because if you read the Bible literally, and you take the passage of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and you consider the 70th week of Daniel, And you know from that passage that it says halfway through the tribulation, three and a half years into the tribulation period, the uh, the Antichrist is going to break break the covenant that he made with Israel. And And from that point on, that's when the great tribulation starts. We know from that point on, there's scriptures in Revelation that also number the days. From that point on, you can number the days to when Jesus is coming back. He's not talking about the second coming of Christ. He's talking about the rapture of the church. He's talking about no one knows the day or the hour of the rapture of the church, which, by the way, if that's the case, 
then there's no other place for the rapture of the church to fit except for pre-trib. Because once it starts, once the Antichrist is revealed, he's the one that makes the peace covenant with Israel for one week. We know exactly what's going to happen, folks. It's all laid out in Scripture. We know exactly when it's going to happen. I think he's talking about a, um, a, a, a pre-trib rapture here. And, and Jesus goes on and he, he tells us, he even defines in Matthew 24, Daniel's prophecy. He brings it up in Matthew 24, 15 through 21. He said, when, so when you read the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop know, not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, who is he talking about? The children of Israel. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that, you, that your flight might not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For, when, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and will never be. The great tribulation defines for us where that fits in the 70th week of Daniel. It's mid-trib. It's mid-tribulation. So, you know, I, I think Jesus was a pre-trib rapturist. I think that's what he's saying. You know, the word there, taken, in Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41, where he's talking about the one man in the, you know, in the field taken or the one woman in, uh, grinding at the mill be taken, that word Take, taken is in the Greek paralambano, and it means to take one close in association or to join to oneself. To join to oneself. So when will the rapture occur? Is it post-tribulation rapture? This is by far the most unscriptural, folks, when it comes to this view. It's, it's by far the least supported when it comes to Scripture. Um, Dwight Pentecost said in his book, Things to Come, which I also highly recommend, if you really want to get good, a good grasp of all the different views and how they come to those conclusions, that is a great book. He is a pre-trib guy, but he lays all the different arguments out on how they come to that conclusion and why it's just not right when it, because of Bible prophecy. But, but he, comes to, he says that post-trib rapturists deny three important things, and they all do. Dispensationalism, God works in different ages and times. The distinction between the church and Israel, which is huge, Right? And number three is the eminence of Christ, that he could return at any time. Every other view except for the pre-trib view requires a lot of things to happen in order for Jesus to come back. And pre-trib is the only one that, that doesn't do that. Now, the post-trib rapturists will, and, and, uh, and the mid-trib guys will say, well, the, the pre-trib view is a new teaching. And they'll bring up John Darby in 1830, and they'll say, like, yeah, that's when... That that's when actually the, the pre-trib rapture came out. Everybody before that was, was mid-trib or, or actually mid-trib, not even mid-trib. Post-trib is actually the newest teaching, by the way, but, but, the, but that's not true. John Darby, listen to this. John Darby resurfaced what the early church fathers taught in the first place. Just like, hey, just like Martin Luther brought out justification by grace through faith in Christ alone in the same, you know, just prior to this, just prior to this, 1500s. Was he wrong? Was that a new teaching? No, it was not. You can go back and look at the historical 
um, content of various different teachers from the first, second century, third century, right before the Catholic Church was established. And you can see several apostles of John who wrote the book of Revelation were talking pre-trib language. We're talking pre-trib language. So, so um, you know, where these guys come to this conclusion, again, they reject the, that God is working in different time periods. They, they totally reject the distinction. You have to, guys. You have to, dis, to, to say that Israel and the church are, are, are not different. They're the same in order to come to this conclusion. And they consider, they also consider the, uh, um, the resurrection of the dead in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. They, they don't distinguish between the church and the Old Testament saints. And so they say, oh, no, that's, that's all of them, which is, which is, you know, kind of a, that could be a problem for pre-trib, you know, but you can distinguish them. They're separate situations because you get to Revelation 20 verses 5 and 6, and you can, there's a, there, that speaks about the first resurrection of who will get there. Don't worry. We will, we will uncover that. But I, but I think, you know, they will say, well, that's why, it's post-trib because the, the first resurrection doesn't happen until Jesus comes back, when he's coming back. Um, but again, you have to deny a whole bunch of other things to get to that place. What about mid-trib? Mid-trib, uh, again, I'm just giving you a summary. You can look these up later. At three and a half years, they believe that um, in the 70th week of Daniel that the uh, Christ will come. They also must deny or at least high, uh, highly weaken dispensationalism. They also... Um, they also do not make a distinction between Israel and the church and the doctrine and eminence. According to Dwight Pentecost, the position must depend to a certain extent on the spiritualization method of interpretation. This is particularly evident in the explanation of the portions of Scripture dealing with the first half of the tribulation period. And I explained that a little bit already, talking about the pre-wrath view. Uh, the mid-trib rapturists or, or the pre-wrath rapturists, the same, it's kind of the same view, but they look at it like the first three and a half years is, is God, God allowing. God's not, not in control. That's not what they don't, they don't say that. God is in control. They, they will affirm that. But they say God is, God is allowing man to do, to, to, to reign in wrath on the world and also Satan. And so that's where they really kind of uh, put, their, put their bank on. And important to note, they really um, bring it back to the idea of the seventh trumpet, right? The seventh trumpet, Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 and verse 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and is Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then in verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was open, and the ark of the earth and the ark of the, his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, uh, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So they're, they're saying that's the, all of that, that, at that point, that's when the wrath of God comes. At that point is when the, the wrath of God will come down on the earth. They claim 1 Corinthians 15, verses 52 and 53. The word last trumpet in that verse is speaking about that moment. And this is obviously a rapture verse. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and 53, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perished and we shall be changed. They hold to the idea that the seals and the trumpets are not the wrath of God. They claim God is simply permissive in the seals as they represent the works of man and the, and the trumpets as they represent the works of Satan. 
Thus, they reject the 70th week of Daniel, Daniel as being a seven-year period of God's wrath, but believe the Great Tribulation is only three and a half years, and that is God's wrath being poured out on the world. But here's, here's something to think about. If you come to that conclusion, you have to, what do you do with the 144,000 Jews that get saved in the first three and a half years of the tribulation? If God raptures the church, wouldn't they be part of the church? And then does, doesn't God take them out? There's a whole bunch of problems with that. That's just one of them in that view. And by the way, there, there's, there's not, not problems with all of them. They're, they all have little problems. So um, just know that. But when they interpret the word last in the trumpet there, they're speaking last, um, last point of time, meaning it's like the last trumpet. Speaking of that trumpet, that sounds in Revelation eleven fifteen. But, it's also, but, but it can also mean last in point of sequence. So the idea is, is it's the last trumpet of what? I think it's the last trumpet of the church. The last sounding board, the last attention getter of the world when it comes, relates to the church. For pre-trib rapturists, again, Dwight Pentecost, he, he says that the rapturists, th- these, the, the essentials of this, uh, of this premise of belief is the literal interpretation of the scriptures. So if you've heard anything today, how do you read the Bible? Is it literal or non-literal? That will land you at one place or another. But if you lead it, read it literally, um, you know, you, you, they also ascribe to dispensational theology, most of them. They're, that there's a separation between the church and Israel, and um, you know, also in the eminence of Christ. So as a pre-tribulational rapturist, we believe the tribulation period is primarily for God to deal with Israel. It's a primary time where the Lord is turning his heart back towards Israel. You want to get some more information on that? Read Romans chapter 9, verse through chapter 11. You can understand. He's talking about the nation of Israel there. He's talking about what's going on there, that he chose them that he has a plan for them, that all of the unconditional promises that God has given Israel will stand. God does not lie, and he fulfills every promise that he's been given. And many of these promises have nothing to do with the nation itself. It's God's, it's a one-way promise. God says, I will do these things, not based on anything that you've done. Um, and, and also something important um, you know, we maintain that 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17 is speaking about the same event as Paul described in 1 Corinthians 15, 52 and 53. Um, we believe that also, something important that I did not mention is m- the other viewpoints also believe that the 70th week of Daniel, ha- many of them believe that it's already been fulfilled, that it's historic. We believe that it's future, that it is yet to happen. And one final point I will say is that if the seven-year tribulation period is God's wrath being poured out, then 1 Thessalonians 5.9 tells us that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Understand, Paul is talking about the times and the seasons of the coming of the day of the Lord in that chapter. He just finishes with the rapture of the church, and he talks about the, you know, the, that time frame of the day of the Lord he's talking about. But he says that God is not appointed God has not destined us for wrath. Who's the us? He's speaking to the church. And one, one of the things that really made a lot of sense to me when I was reading Scripture, coming to this conclusion of pre-trib rapture, was 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, 
not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Uh, so there's two things that have to happen in order for this, this con to, con to, be, to come to pass. Uh, the, the, the lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes the, his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Uh, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. You know, I see the restrainer in this passage as being the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. If, if that's the interpretation of the scripture, that it's the Holy Spirit who's the restrainer. And he's the one that's keeping, you know, the, the man of lawlessness from being to, to rise. We know that's the case. Because the church is, is really stopping all kinds of evil from happening right now. You know, they just went, I think they're legislating right now the Roe v. Wade thing. And, 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 you know, and all of that's going on right now. Why? It's not because it's, it's just good moral people in the world that are standing up against this stuff. It's the church of Jesus Christ who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and in order for the world to become a, a place of just complete lawlessness... In my mind, the restrainer has to be taken out, the Holy Spirit, who I believe is the church. So I believe at that point, the, 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 he's speaking about the church being taken out of the way so that this can happen. So, you know, I, I think it was important for me to, come to, the, to help you come to a conclusion of the way I'm going to teach this before I teach it. So next week, guess what? Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, Lord, to help us to come to the right conclusion. Lord, we don't want to be arrogant about our understanding of Scripture, God. And, and I'm sure, Lord, I, I, I just, Lord, I know that when you take a broad brush like this and stroke it across that, um, that you, you can't really do, it, do justice, all of the different intricacies. And so I ask you to just use what's been said here today to draw people to the right conclusion, God. And um, that you would just draw all of us into this place of intimacy with you now as you prepare our hearts for communion. And uh, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, Lord. We thank you for the gospel that saved our souls, that Jesus came, he died, he rose again from the dead for us personally. And so as awesome as the rapture is, Lord, and, and these, these subjects, the thing that we worship is you. And what you've done for us is just unspeakable, amazing, Lord. So will you take these final moments of this time together and will you just draw us to yourself? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.